Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. Today I'm talking to Justin Rothmarsh, who is the author of a fantastic book called The Machine. And so notwithstanding the fact I called him Jason when I started interviewing him, we have a fantastic conversation today about how he, over 30 years consulting into sales, shatters many of the myths that many people have about what makes salespeople great and how you can take learnings from operations and production environments and bring it to sales so that you can scale up. He says, this is the the question to ask yourself. If you doubled sales, do you know what to do with the resulting orders? And most people would say, well, you know, we could deliver this to customers and we could make that happen and we could hire more engineers. Or if you're a hotel, you could build more hotels. But how would you double sales in the first place? Should it not be as easy as just doubling the number of salespeople? And if your answer is no, if you didn't believe that doubling the number of salespeople would double your revenue, then you have a problem with productivity in your sales organization. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how you might split a 10-person sales team, just have one person left, and how that might still double your revenue. So fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So I'm Justin Rothmarsh from Ballistics. I wrote a book called The Machine about um, three or four years ago. At least it was published three or four years ago. The book talks about a radically different approach to designing and managing the sales function, which is my expertise and what I've been doing for the last 30 or so years. Um, Ballistics is, a, I guess, a managed service provider. We have operations on in three countries, um, Australia, the US, and uh, the UK. We're headquartered in the US. Jason, what does the business do? So our clients pay us a monthly fee. And for that monthly fee, typically, we will either build a sales function entirely from scratch or we will work with them on on the rebuild of their sales function. And I say sales function loosely because actually most of the work that we do is building the functions or rebuilding the functions that are adjacent to sales so as to make sales more productive. So in simple terms, we go into organizations, build brand new customer service teams or re-engineer their existing ones, re-engineer their engineering teams, particularly sales-facing engineering, and uh, re-engineer their marketing teams. The end result of all this heavy lifting is we put salespeople in a position where there is absolutely nothing that they can possibly do with their day other than have selling conversations purely in pursuit of net new business. In other words, we completely remove them from transactions with existing accounts and focus them exclusively on the pursuit of net new business. Is that work that you do sort of with account management or what people would have historically called account managers or is it only net new logos? Our general approach is that 
we want to preserve the word sales for the pursuit of net new business, which means either new logos, to use your terminology, or selling new categories to existing clients. So we think, I mean, in most cases, your clients are essentially annuities. Okay, so it doesn't make sense for salespeople to be involved with them after the first transaction. They should be handed off to maybe project management for implementation, onboarding, whatever the case is, and then customer service from that point onwards to manage the account. In the old days, if you were a salesperson selling mortgages, you used to, you used to go door to door to collect every payment. And this is how most sales functions are structured. Salespeople are winning accounts and then managing them thereafter. Uh, and of course, the more accounts they have, the less new ones they win. In our world, salespeople just pursue net new business, nothing else. And that means redesigning the rest of the organization so there's no requirement for salespeople to be involved in anything other than the pursuit of net new business. And so this is a radically different concept for most organizations. You said you've been doing this for 30 years? Yeah, so ballistics has been around for about 25 years, thereabouts, approach, probably just approaching 25 years. Before ballistics, I was a partner in a startup where we kind of pioneered the essential ideas behind this method. So that would take it back 30 years, perhaps a fraction more. At the core, what were the problems you're trying to fix? Well, the problem that we're trying to fix is sales people are hideously unproductive, and that manifests for most organizations in an inability to scale the sales function beyond a certain size because of rapidly diminishing returns. So if you went to most organizations and said to them, look, what would happen if you doubled your sales volumes, they would know how to scale up production. They would say, well, we'd need a new production facility, or we'd need to run a third shift, or we'd need to install some more equipment in the plant. But if you go to an organization that has insufficient sales and ask them the same question, well, how do you scale up sales? They draw a blank. And of course, the answer should be, well, we double the size of our sales function. But nobody wants to give that answer because everybody's kind of implicitly aware of the fact that if they double the size of their sales function, they wouldn't double sales. And that should cause us concern because if a production manager told us that doubling the number of shifts or doubling the amount of plant and equipment wouldn't have a commensurate impact on production, we would instantly recognize there was something wrong with the design of the sales function. Completely. And at the heart, why, why is sales so poorly run or managed in most organizations, do you think? There's an absence of recognition that it is poorly run and poorly managed. I think folks don't think from first principles. I mean, the point that I made about production being inherently scalable and sales not being, and the fact that there's that discrepancy should be pointing us to a core problem, to my mind, is kind of obvious. And if folks stop to think from first principles rather than just parroting the orthodoxy from generation to generation, maybe you know more folks will be realizing this. But it's to my mind, it's pretty bloody obvious. Why aren't people thinking more deeply about sales is probably a better question. And I think the reason is that, um, to be frank, for most of the recent history of modern industry, it hasn't been necessary for us to think that deeply about sales because the success of business has not been driven by sales. It's been driven by new product development and operational improvement. And is your thinking here on sales predicated on enough marketing activity? Or is it that sales without marketing activity can survive on its own? It depends how you define marketing. 
if you define marketing as most marketing departments do, or actually that's not true, if you looked at the activities of most marketing departments and drew up a functional definition of marketing based upon the stuff that marketing folks do, then I think that most of the stuff that marketing folks do has very little impact on short-term sales, which is a problem. I think most businesses are not built on the back of marketing. Most businesses are built on the back of sales. So most marketing folks don't spend much of their time on the generation of sales opportunities. They spend most of their time on the necessary infrastructure that's required, you know, websites and e-commerce and brochures and uh, sales collateral and so on. And this is one of the core problems we seek to address. I mean, if we want to build an environment where salespeople do nothing to do, which is most assuredly what we do want to do, then it's necessary that we reconfigure the marketing department so the marketing department can serve up sales opportunities to salespeople at the rate at which they consume them. So, you know, any organization that we work with, salespeople's opportunity queues are replenished every single morning before salespeople get to work. And salespeople have nothing to do with the origination of sales opportunities. They focus simply on performing selling activities against the opportunities that are served up to them. And so marketing's job is the creation of those sales opportunities? It is. But it has a broader remit, I guess, than the traditional marketing? Probably a narrower remit. So you mentioned you came from um, a tech company. The The general thinking in uh, Silicon Valley, well, in tech in general, is that is that inbound sales opportunities are virtuous and, and that outbound activities are evil or something approaching evil. Well, certainly that's the basis of HubSpot's entire product proposition. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the proposition, but there's something verging on unethical I think around how they sell it, I think for most organizations, they make promises that the methodology, the inbound methodology simply can't deliver on. So here's my full take on that. Um, if you're a business and you want to grow, in the short term where sales activities are concerned, sales is, at least in one sense, a, a zero-sum game. Now, I'm not arguing that business is, obviously it's not, but it's one of the magical things about capitalism. But in the short term, sales is a zero-sum game. And the reason for that is that your salespeople, like everyone else's salespeople, are competing for the finite attention of the market segment that you're playing in. And if you imagine that you were a buyer, you have a capacity to only have a certain number of um, conversations with vendors, salespeople in any given week. And we would have to assume that that capacity is relatively inelastic because talking to vendor salespeople is probably not your primary reason for existence. So I think it's fair to assume the inelasticity. And I think it's also fair to assume that salespeople will consume whatever capacity you have. That should cause us to conclude, and this is a safe, we don't even have to test this. This is just a safe assumption in the absence of any information to the contrary, that our sales team should be displacing selling conversations that competitors, salespeople would otherwise have. So in other words, the correct number of selling conversations for your salespeople to have in any given week is not as many as possible, which is what marketing would think based upon their behavior, but more than your fair share. In other words, if you have 10% market share and you know that there are 100 selling conversations every week in the space in which you compete, your fair share would be 10 a week. But of course, you're not going to grow if you're just having your fair share. So you want to be having two or three times your fair share. Now, most organizations don't understand that. But the interesting thing is once you do understand that, in almost all, not all, but almost all cases, it will become immediately apparent to you that you cannot generate sales opportunities at the rate necessary 
to fulfill that requirement if you are totally dependent upon inbound. So therefore, you must have a mix of outbound and inbound. And furthermore, if you have a mix of inbound and outbound, then you probably should be recognizing that the outbound should be at least 70% of the mix because otherwise your salespeople will ignore the outbound and just focus on the inbound. In terms of the opportunities created or in terms of the work that they need to do to generate? Here's the thing. If you were a salesperson and your marketing team generated 70% of your sales opportunities from inbound campaigns and 30% from outbound, you would never pay any attention to the outbound. You would find a way to expand the work so 70% means that the inbound opportunities would keep you busy until about 4.15 every day, maybe 3.45 every day. You would find a way to expand the work you were doing on the inbound so that you got to go home every day without paying any attention at all to the outbound. Is that because in your in your mind, uh, you've got a rule of thumb that says the inbound closes quicker and is less work than the outbound? Just where it is in terms of the, the buyer behavior or buy, the, the buyer cycle. Yeah, and, and it depends how aggressively you pursue them. If if your content marketing degenerates into sort of clickbait and spam, obviously the you'll reduce the discrepancy in, I guess, quality, we could use that term, between inbound and outbound. But I think that most organizations only generate a small number of opportunities from their inbound efforts, and they allow salespeople to treat these as kind of the benchmark where quality is concerned. So that means every opportunity that isn't inbound is regarded by salespeople as subpar or unqualified to use their terminology. <laughs> or crap, as they tend to say. Yeah. Yes, which is idiotic. If you were designing a sales function from scratch, from first principles, and you had the most basic understanding of human nature, it should be clear that if inbound was not an indefinitely scalable source of sales opportunities, then we need to make sure that our sales team are conditioned to understand that outbound opportunities are the primary opportunities and inbound are just the icing on the cake. Yes. I mean, I have been at organizations early in my career, particularly at Rackspace, where we could never scale fast enough to get to outbound. We were really lucky. It was a moment in time where the more money we poured into Google search, the more inbound we got and scaling the sales team was something we were just hanging on to scale the sales team. Yeah. So our view on that is if if you can generate 100% of your sales opportunities from inbound, you absolutely should. But it has to be 100%. It can't be 95%. Otherwise, the 5% is a waste of time. Yeah, because otherwise you've, you've just hit diminishing returns. The 5% will be ignored. And what that means, if you increase the size of your sales team by 30%, you know, you can grow the percentage of outbound or you will have to grow the percentage of outbound from 5% to 25% or something. And then the entire 25% will be ignored. And until you flip it the other way around, the outbound won't get any attention. So you need to decide, is our primary source of uh, sales opportunities going to be inbound or outbound? And this HubSpot idea that only inbound is virtuous is enormously damaging to organizations that aren't in the lucky few. I mean, if the tide's coming in and all you've got to do is drink cognac, smoke a cigar and, and wait for your um, BDR to pass through to you an appropriately qualified um, sales opportunity for you to uh, close and cash out on, then you're lucky. But most organizations don't exist in that state. And I suspect Rackspot today probably isn't in that state anymore. Oh, no, indeed. The market definitely turned some time ago. But I think people know that outbound is going to be challenging. 
and they don't know how to manage it and they don't know how to recruit. And so they are seduced by the idea of trying to do inbound only. So let me tell you something really good and something that folks just don't appreciate with outbound. The key to making outbound successful is, is segmentation. So it's very hard to come up with a proposition that appeals to 100,000 people. It's very easy to come up with a proposition that appeals to one person. So Dominic, if I was to study you intently, given enough time and energy, I could come up with a proposition that had a very high likelihood of getting your attention because you're just one person. I mean, I could follow you around. I could read all your blog posts. I could hire a private investigator to leaf through your rubbish. You know, sooner or later, I would find some base, some meaningful basis for engagement with you. And I would be able to approach you with a proposition that had a high likelihood of at least starting a conversation. It mightn't go anywhere, but at least we'd start a conversation. Now you can do that for one person, but you can't do it for a hundred thousand people. So what happens is as you increase the size of the market segment, your ability to come up with compelling propositions decreases geometrically. Now, what folks don't understand about AppBand is that AppBand, because of diminishing returns problem, puts marketers in a position where they're pursuing larger and larger groups of people, which means, of course, the propositions they're taking to those groups of people are becoming less and less compelling. So once you hit diminishing returns on your inbound efforts, which most organizations have, but don't want to admit, outbound actually allows you to solve the core problem that's causing the diminishing returns by enabling you to go after much, much smaller market segments. Our clients will build a campaign that has three or 400 contacts in it, and that will keep their sales team busy for 10 days. You know, if you mailed three or 400 contacts and, you know, an EDM or some email that pushed them to a landing page, your honest estimate of how many responses you would get from that would be zero. Well, you certainly wouldn't make any sales. No. So you're, if you're in the marketing department, you'd say, well, 300 isn't going isn't to cut this. We need to find a list of 300,000 because if we've got three people on our sales team and our sales team consumes opportunities collectively at the rate of about 30 a day, which they will if that's all they do, then in order to generate 30 sales opportunities day, a day, we have to have an absolutely huge list to mail. We're going to be mailing almost you know, half the business population of the US every day. And how the hell are we going to come up with a compelling proposition for an audience that big? And the answer is you can't and you won't. Yes. And so you just see the stuff that people send you or you know, emails you get are just gibberish. Yep. Junk. Not relevant at all. Who's your client audience? What type of businesses do you typically work with? Well, for the most part, we work with manufacturers. So we really like working with manufacturers or what we would call industrial distribution. So that would be manufacturers and distributors of industrial products. The reason we like working with those folks is their businesses tend to have better economics than, say, tech companies. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't be in business. When we work with organizations that have really good product market fit and really good operations, then we can scale them quite quickly. And is it also that they've got that, they know that they have a finite number of people that they can sell to so that it, there's a fit between the way in which you think about it and, and their challenge? Well, I think everyone has a finite number of people that they can sell to. So I don't, I don't think so. I mean, our expertise is building sales teams. So if you compare, say, a, an industrial distribution business with, say, a consumer internet business, we would never talk to a consumer internet business because they don't field a sales team in the first place, at least not 
with respect to their core business. They might selling ads, but that would be B2B. But if you look at, say, a consumer business like Facebook, and then you say, well, we're not actually talking about the consumer-facing stuff, we're talking about the B2B stuff, then if Facebook had an enterprise sales team, which they undoubtedly do, then we would definitely be in a position to help them with that. And in that case, of course, their market would be significantly smaller. Their audience would be significantly smaller than it would on the consumer side. Perhaps you could talk the audience through this idea of specialization and breaking it down. So what does the supporting cast start to look like if the salesperson is only selling and that's the only thing that we're counting on them to do? To engineer the organization so that the salesperson's only selling, and more specifically, they're only having selling conversations in pursuit of net new business. That's the precise description of what they're doing. They do nothing else. So no solution design, no project management, no prospecting, no customer service, nothing. So to put salespeople in that position really means re-engineering four other departments or three other departments around them. The first thing that you have to do is rebuild and probably enlarge significantly your customer service team so that the customer service team has the capacity and the capabilities to look after all of that annuity business. I mean, there must be absolutely nothing lacking. So there is never any request from an existing customer to talk to a salesperson with respect to existing business. So that's the first thing we do, build significantly more capable and more robust customer service teams. And we could spend an hour just talking about how we do that. And then the next piece is engineering, particularly in technical environments. The sales team can't stand on its own two feet. It needs uh, support from engineering because when there are requests for custom products or proposals or when there are technical problems, obviously, if we don't want salespeople involved, we need a tight integration between sales and customer service. So in a lot of organizations, we help them to re-engineer engineering. Typically, we'll split engineering into four separate groups, you know, production engineering, which is um, shop floor facing, design engineering, which is sales facing, new product development, and then subject matter experts who are their own separate little division. So that's a whole ton of work on engineering and technical environments. And then the last thing we do is build a much more robust marketing departments, which basically means splitting marketing in two. So we take the existing marketing group and we say, okay, you guys are Marcoms. That's all you ever were anyway. But now we need a new group called marketing whose sole reason for existence is to replenish salespeople's opportunity queues every day. So we build this promotions team and we tightly couple it to marketing so that every day somebody comes to work and tops up salespeople's opportunity queues for them. And it's only after we've done work on you know, significant amounts of work on those three adjacent functions that we're in a position to say to salespeople, okay, right, the only thing you need to do now is have selling conversations in pursuit of net new business. And you've also have somebody even book the diary of the salesperson so that the salesperson is not even in control of their own time. Is that the best way to think about it? You must be English because when I say diary here in the States, nobody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, do, you have to, do you have to say calendar? I moved here from Australia, so we say diary in Australia. But yeah, so in the case of a field salesperson, but I've got to say, Dominic, most of our clients move almost all of their selling activities inside. Okay. It's simply false that in almost every case, it's false that selling needs to be done in the field. It doesn't. And to the extent that there are activities that do need to be performed in the field, in most cases, those activities tend to be technical in nature, not sales focused. Well, it's funny because when I 
when I was running Rackspace in the UK, there was an organization that in the US was based in San Antonio and they were phone based across the whole of the US. And in the UK, certainly traditionally the business B2B stuff was all face to face because we're never more than 70 miles from the sea. And you can, you know, with enough will go and do one meeting a day in your car, wherever they, wherever you or they live. And so having run field sales teams, I was then switched to telephone based sales teams and the productivity gain you get is absolutely huge. Well, we've built a number of sales functions in the UK. I just got back from there actually on Saturday and the Brits are slow to realize this for exactly that reason, because they can get out and drive around in the car. They, you know, they say to me, how big do you think the UK is? I say, I know how big it is. It's bloody small. I've driven around the UK two or three times doing appointments. It, it's amazing. You could never do that in the US. You could ne- I could never say, look, uh, you're in Atlanta. Let me drive out there and visit with you. And you couldn't do the same in Australia either. You couldn't in Australia. Well, you'd be. It would actually be easier in Australia because everyone in Australia lives in the one one little pocket of the continent. But the UK is pretty evenly populated all over. So the idea that you'd drive from Bedford to Edinburgh to do a sales meeting is ridiculous. But there are folks who will will do that. So our experience in the UK is it's just as easy to replace field with telephone as it is in the US. It's just that folks haven't been forced to admit that it's possible until recently. Again, do you have a heuristic that gives you a sense of productivity improvement when you do that? Yeah, five times, easily five times. The problem with the field is, so if you have an inside salesperson, the work comes to them. You know, you have a list of tasks, essentially, and you complete one task, you perform the next task. Nothing has to be scheduled. But if you're in the field, you have to go to the work, which means every activity you perform has to be scheduled, which means it needs to be buffered. So if you have a 10 o'clock meeting, you probably can't book a nine o'clock meeting that day because you would need to make sure that you arrived at least half an hour before the 10 o'clock meeting, you know, to have a reasonable amount of safety. You just can't pack the same volume of work into the day. So an inside salesperson would comfortably have 15 to 20 selling conversations a day in any environment where we would work, including very technical ones. But you put that same person in the field, they'd be lucky to have two and a half meetings a day. So that means that if you say, well, our salespeople are more productive when they're face-to-face, I would say, sure they are. But are they five times more productive? Highly unlikely. And what do you do? You've got the subject matter experts, that's sort of the technical pre-sales, is it? Yeah. So if we're going to put anyone in the field, we'll probably put technical people in the field, what we call field specialists. So in most cases, what we do is we move sales inside we take the legacy salespeople, we turn them into field specialists whose job it is to run around in the field and perform whatever technical tasks are required to support the internal sales team. So detailed requirement discovery, demos, things like that. But then all of the selling conversations are performed inside. And in most cases, on the rare occasions that a sales conversation actually needs to be performed face-to-face, particularly with mid-sized companies, it's because it's a major deal. It's a million or a $2 million or a $5 million deal. And in those kind of cases, you typically find that the owner of the firm is going to be out there doing that sort of final laying on of hands negotiation meeting anyway. So in the rare cases where it's absolutely critical to be face-to-face because of the deal size, we often discover that uh, in spite of salespeople's protestation, they weren't even doing those meetings anyway. It was the owner of the firm or a senior executive. But then they were getting typically getting paid commission on it, which I guess brings us to the topic of commission. We uh, eliminate commissions entirely for 
in every environment where we work. And that's conditional upon us working with someone. If someone wants to work with us and they say, look, Justin, we love your whole methodology, except the bit about eliminating commissions, I will say, well, you can't love our whole methodology because you couldn't even understand it, let alone love it, if it wasn't obvious to you that piece rate pay needs to be eliminated when you apply division of labor in any environment. I mean, we used to have piece rate pay in production environments 20, 30, 50 years ago. And it's gone now, not because somebody made a philosophical decision about piece rate pay. You know, there's an interesting philosophical argument, but piece rate pay in manufacturing was eliminated for practical reasons. And that's because the productivity of an environment where you have division of labor is not the sum of the productivity of the individual contributors. It's more a function of the the synchronization of the individual contributors, which is the when you apply division of labor, division of labor holds out the promise of massive increases in productivity. But the flip side is that in order to exploit that potential, you have to figure out how to synchronize the crew, which means ultimately you need somebody banging a drum to which everyone marches, whether that person's a shop floor scheduler or a project manager or a conductor in an orchestra or air traffic control in a busy airport. In an environment where you have division of labor to function effectively, individual contributors need to give up their autonomy in favor of a um, a central person who does traffic control. And look, I've been advocating for a number of years that we don't need to pay salespeople commission. And one of the biggest pushbacks I get, along with the hate mail from salespeople, is that you won't be able to attract salespeople to a job unless you pay them commission. You've had 25 years of experience of solving this problem. How do you manage to do that? Well, it's true that if you don't pay commission, you won't attract the crusty old reps who are working for your competitors, and that doesn't cause us to lose that much sleep. But the interesting thing is if you advertise, if you run an ad for a sales job and you say that uh, we will pay you your market value, we will provide opportunities for you, so all you have to do is have selling conversations, uh, no paperwork, no expense reports, no proposals, nothing. All you have to do is sell. And we're going to pay you your market value. So if, if you would reasonably expect to earn 180K a year, you're going to earn 180K a year, except we're going to pay it to you in the form of a salary, not you know base plus commission. Our experience is when we run ads like that, we have folks lining up down the street for those jobs. Yeah. Now, do we get your competitor salespeople? Maybe not, but that doesn't cause me that much sleep, to, to lose that much sleep. And how many of the, when you go into an organization that already has a sales team, how many of them do you keep? All of them. Okay. If we're going to lose someone, it's probably the sales manager. Okay. So here's the thing. If you stand up in front of a room of salespeople and their managers, and you say, look, we're thinking of eliminating commissions, everybody will be upset. But then when you explain the logic behind this, then when you say, look, we're going to eliminate commissions, but we're going to pay everyone what they were expecting to earn anyway. So we're going to take your last three years income and we're going to add, you know, five or 10% to it just as a gesture of good faith. And we're going to fix your income as a, in the form of a salary. But even then it's not fixed. If you think you're, you know, you're performing better than your pay grade, then you can come to us whenever you like and negotiate a pay raise. But the positive here, aside from the fact that we're transferring you from variable to fixed, is that you don't have to do all the crap that was stopping you from being productive previously. You don't have to write expense reports. You don't have to generate your own quotes. You don't have to chase problems for, for clients. 
we're going to put you in an environment where all you have to do is sell. What you will find is everyone in that room will be excited about this, with the exception of the sales managers. This is not traumatic for salespeople. It's only traumatic for sales managers. And the reason it's traumatic for sales managers is because what we're essentially doing is flushing the orthodoxy down the toilet. And that's all that salespeople know, all all that sales managers know. But salespeople are in a different position. Salespeople uh, have enough contact with reality to understand the flaws in the orthodoxy. So when someone proposes a model that is clearly better than the one that their sales manager is evangelizing, then they quickly turn their back on the orthodoxy and they say, yeah, we're happy to sign on with this new model because the old one actually sucks. And do you then have to backfill, you know, because if you've got that sort of sales team that were doing everything, I guess, I don't know, you might have had a sales team of five or six or maybe 10 people. And how many of those people are really now only selling? Other other people drop into different roles, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So if you had a team of 10 people running around in the field, what the end state is, we would probably turn one of those people into a true enterprise salesperson, pair them up with a BDM, you know, like chapter one of the machine. Because if you've got 10 salespeople, you must be a reasonable size business, you know, 50 million in sales or something, 30 to 50 million in sales, I would expect, depending on what you're selling. So we would turn maybe one of those people into an enterprise salesperson, pair them up with an executive assistant. We would probably turn three or four of those people into field specialists. We might turn one of them into a project leader. And what we might find is that in that sales team, there are a couple of people who don't like the idea of traveling nonstop if they stay in the field. So they will probably put their hands up and volunteer to join the the brand new inside sales team that we're building. And how many outbound salespeople might you need to put in Well, it depends. If you want to maintain the same volume of sales and you had 10 people in the field previously, you probably only need, you know, maybe three in the inside sales team to drive growth over and above what your field team was providing previously. So if you were starting from scratch, let's say your legacy sales team got wiped out and they went skiing, they got wiped out in an avalanche and you were starting from scratch, you probably find that a team of three inside salespeople supported by two field specialists could actually generate more net new selling conversations than the entire team of 10 were previously. But to be fair, we would have to support that team with probably two more people in customer service, you know, maybe one more person in engineering and one or two more people in the marketing department. So the, the net payroll cost is probably going to stay roughly the same, but I would expect you would double your volume of selling activity with no change in payroll cost. And that's really the upside here. And I love the idea of hiring an executive assistant for your enterprise salesperson. I mean, my experience is that those enterprise salespeople who are just really good at it, their admin sucks. And the idea of backing them off with somebody who costs you 20 or 25,000 pounds a year, so they never have to do it again is money well spent. But people, people balk at that. A story I often tell is um, I was on a a cross country flight here from LA to New York. And I was just at the stage where I, you know, I'd switched from an Australian airline. I'd just, I'd moved here five or six years earlier and I'd moved from an Aussie carrier to American airlines. And I had to go through that horrible period where my status went to zero and I was just gaining my status back as American realized how much I flew. And I think it was the first time I got upgraded to first class on account of my brand new status. And, uh, the planes held up with this, with this guy who was running late and everyone's pissed because this guy's holding the plane up and he runs onto the, the plane and chucks his uh, satchel 
which was essentially empty into the overhead compartment. But before he does that, he pulls out his iPad. And I realized that, gosh, he's got this leather satchel. All that's in it is an iPad. But the interesting thing about this fellow is he's tanned. He's got long, curly gray hair. He's wearing a like a crumpled linen suit and a white shirt open almost to the belly button. And he's wearing flip-flops. And he has this big, fat gold Rolex. And he plumps down into, in the seat you know, next to me. And he says, um, sorry, dude, let's go. <laughs> And so uh, I got talking to this guy because how could you not? I said, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'm in technology. I said, no, you don't look like a software developer. He says, I've never written a line of code in my life. I work for Oracle. I said, oh, it's in sales. He said, yes, but you knew that already. I said, yeah, I guess that. And he said, I said, what do you do? And he said, oh, well, I'm kind of a closer. He said, Oracle flies me around the world and I just help close big deals. He said, it's really all I do these days. I'm just the point guy who arrives at the last minute and helps with the final negotiation, gets the deal across the line. He said, that's all I do. They fly me around the world and I work on big deals. <laughs> so, you know, I doubt Larry's ever read my book. I hope that he will one day because I'm sure he'd like it. But an organization the size of Oracle that obviously got to the point where it makes sense to have a specialist doing that. I mean, really, that's all we're doing, except that guy was probably earning a million bucks a year. We would do a similar thing in, in a sense because we would take capable enterprise salespeople, we'd pair them up with an executive assistant, and we would make sure that the only thing they ever do is go and spend time in boardrooms having commercial selling conversations with executive teams, and they do nothing else. Is there anything else, any other elements of the methodology that you get pushback on from clients that we haven't talked about yet? Or maybe not pushback, maybe people, something that people think they're not going to like and that than they do like afterwards. Yeah. I used to lead when I talked to folks about sales process engineering with division of labor. And in recent times, I've just discovered it's more fun not to lead with the division of labor idea to let it, to let it kind of sneak up on people. If I'm talking to groups, there's a point in time where they realize, oh shit, we can see where this is going. You're basically breaking what we call sales down to do a whole bunch of discrete activities and allocating those activities all over the place. And then the instinctive question which is essentially an objection disguised as a question is what about relationships? And salespeople will say things like, well, as we all know, sales is all about relationships. So in your model, what happens to relationships? I say, well, can we address the premise before we address the question? You said, as we all know, sales is all about relationships. What the hell does that mean? And if you ask a salesperson that a question, they'll stutter and stammer because they don't really want to disclose exactly what they mean by that statement. I mean, really what they're inferring is that customers buy primarily on the back of a personal relationship that they have with a sales rep. And that's simply not true in most cases. And to the degree that it is true, in most cases, it would indicate a severe operational problem with the organization they work for. The reality is most people purchase because of the commercial relationship they have or think they're going to have with the organization. Or even the personal benefit that the purchase might bring to the purchaser. Exactly, which is a function of the commercial relationship, not the personal relationship. Yeah. It's fairly easy to disprove that sales is all about relationships. All you have to do is count how many of your accounts your salespeople steal when they leave your organization, or count how many of your competitors' accounts salespeople steal when you headhunt them to come and work for your organization. The sort of lazy assumption is if we hire a competitor salesperson, they'll bring their whole book of business with them, but it never works like that. 
if I was to survey our clients, which I do often, and say, look, when you employ a salesperson's rep, how many accounts do they bring with you? The average answer, and there isn't a lot of variation here, the average answer is one. And when you ask the opposite, when a salesperson leaves, how many accounts do they take? The average answer is one. So it turns out that sales is not all about personal relationships. Now, that's not to say that the personal relationship doesn't have some value, but we need to recognize exactly what is the value that a personal relationship adds and where exactly is it added. Most salespeople win sales in spite of, not because of their personal relationships. Well, and it goes back to our earlier conversation about proposition. If a salesperson can bring you a really well-defined proposition where you can see value to the organization and value to you personally, and it's commercially compelling, as long as you don't really object to them, then you know, you're probably going to have a conversation with them. Yeah, if you're a buyer and a salesperson comes to you and says, look, one of the things you're going to love about this organization is me. And the reason you're going to love me is I'm going to run interference between you and the organization so you don't have to put up with any of their bullshit. You might like the sales guy, but why the hell would you want to do business with an organization like that? (laughs) My view on personal relationships, particularly where commodity type purchases are concerned, is that if if you are purchasing commodities, you need a personal relationship with a salesperson only to the extent that the vendor's organization is operationally dysfunctional. Yes. And, and you see that a lot in organizations who have what they call an account manager, which they say is a salesperson, but is actually an order taker slash project manager who knows how to get the order processed inside the organization. Yeah. A lot of our clients will rename their customer service team account management. So they basically move the responsibility from account management from salespeople to the customer service team. But the only caveat there is that there's no allocation of accounts to people. So it's one big pool, one big factory. You know, so we say to our accounts, look, yesterday you had one representative, now you have 10. They all love you and care for you. Call the customer service team. Next in queue, will take your call and all of them will be resourced so that they can provide a superior level of care than that which was previously provided by a field-based salesperson. Justin, if I was to send you back in time, knowing what you now know, what bit of knowledge would you take back with you and where to? Probably the importance of supervision. Uh, So I was a sales manager in my past. Uh, I ran a team of 100 salespeople more than 30 years ago in the insurance industry. I understood how to supervise salespeople back then. But I think at Ballistics, when we decided we wanted to be a consulting firm, for whatever reason, we we decided we, we didn't really want to train salespeople. We assumed that salespeople could sell already, and we didn't really want to train supervisors. We just assumed that supervisors could supervise. We wanted to focus on the design of the sales function. So we always thought, thought of ourselves as process engineers working on kind of the design of the, the engineering of the environment, not the engineering of the people. And I think the first assumption was roughly correct. Most people in sales roles have a rough idea how to sell. There are some rough edges that could be polished off with a little bit of training. So we have no objection there. But there's a huge problem where supervision is concerned. Most mid-sized businesses understand supervision where back of house is concerned, and they have zero understanding of supervision where front of house is concerned. And I think a part of that is the commissions. You know, if you have your salespeople on commission, there's this idea that, well, the comp plan will drive the appropriate behaviors, so we don't need supervision. 
And of course, any one of us who've worked in an environment where you're dealing with commissioned reps, you'll know that sales commissions drive exactly the wrong set of behaviors. So you actually need stronger supervision than you would in an environment without variable comp. And of course, supervision becomes much, much harder because the comp plan is is trying to convince salespeople with every pay packet that they're truly autonomous, which you desperately don't want them to be if they're going to be productive. So you have this um, dilemma. We, we get rid of the variable comp, and then we discover that these organizations n- never had supervision. Their existing sales managers have no idea how to supervise salespeople. And existing sales managers tend to be functional managers, you know, director of sales and marketing rather than supervisors. So we end up with these environments that are completely unsupervised. So what I know now is that when we rebuild an environment, regardless of whether it's customer service or uh, sales or even sometimes engineering, we have to put supervisors in. And we have to appreciate that the organization probably has no understanding of how to supervise folks front of house. So, you know, it's a package deal. If you want to have a few people in an inside sales team and some folks in a customer service team, it's not enough just to have those bodies. You have to have supervision as well. Because the lift in productivity you get from proper supervision is huge. What do you reckon? Ballpark? Well, I talked to an operations professor from MIT who attended one of my lectures. And he was I was using in one of my presentations the example of a racing skull. And I was talking about how, you know, with like a, a nine-person skull, the ninth person is a dead weight. They're the coxswain that sits in the back of the shell and they don't row. And he said, well, the interesting thing is we did some experiments or someone did some experiments and they figured out that as you're adding rowers to a skull, the third body that you put in the skull, it makes more sense for them to be the coxswain than it does to be the uh, a rower. In other words, the first person in the skull should probably row, the second should probably row, but then the third should be a supervisor. And I think the same applies to any environment, certainly an inside sales environment. The third person you add to your inside sales team should be a supervisor. Now, most most organizations find it hard to justify adding a supervisor to manage two people. But I think the economics are such that it makes more sense for the third person to be a supervisor than it does to be another inside sales person. So our trick is to try and aggregate a bunch of people in the front of house. So we'll kind of maybe co-locate the customer service team and the inside sales team and the promotions team. We'll group those people together so that we've got a sort of an economically sized team and then we'll get a supervisor for them. And the addition of the supervisor has a huge impact on the productivity of the team and on your odds of success transitioning to this model, huge impact. And it's something we only realized explicitly recently. So if I could go back, you know, that would be the realization that I'd take back 24 years to when we first got started. Fantastic. And if uh, your book's The Machine, but what other books have you read that have had an impact on your life that you think other people should pick up? Uh, The Goal by Goldratt. Everyone should read The Goal. And for those of you who have read The Goal, who, only, who already understand theory of constraints, there's a lot of TOC baked into uh, the machine. Other books, I think that uh, Reese and Trout talked a lot of good sense where marketing is concerned. So 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing would be a good introduction to Reese and Trout. I would also recommend The Discipline of Market Leaders, which is a popular one in Silicon Valley, I know. I wouldn't recommend that many books that are sales and marketing related. I think 
Where sales is concerned, it makes sense to read at least one book, but I don't think it matters that much whether you read How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins or how to read if you read Spin or any of these other books. They all say basically the same thing. I think the Challenger book was a good book, Challenger Selling. I do like the idea of the Challenger salesperson. Certainly when we help our clients build enterprise teams, we absolutely want salespeople who are kind of the challenger modality, if you like. And oh, and Atlas Shrugged. Everyone should read Atlas Shrugged. Read what? Sorry, what's the book called? Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> Justin, thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. It was fun to chat. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it would be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>